Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back, everyone, to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And today, we are not going to be talking about Michael Cohen and all the goings on with the rumor mill of Trump and Mueller. Sorry, we're just not going to do it. We don't know any more than you do. So all we can do is speculate. What we are going to talk about today is spending, government spending, that is. Has it gotten more attention in the news recently? Not particularly, although it's kind of a perennial problem. Every time the budget cycle comes around, we're threatening a, a shutdown these days. And, you know, there's a lot of angst and consternation over how, what gets spent and how it gets spent, largely because of, you know, big federal deficits and, you know, concern of what's going to happen with the debt, which we discussed at length with, who was it? John Swabish That's of it. the Urban Institute. Thank you, John Swabish. We'll put a link up on, on the show notes Go if you want to check that episode out. Yes. So... We also got inspired to do this because of our listener Q&A. We got a number of questions about spending, including the infamous image about Social Security and Medicare and Republicans. And this reminded me, uh, actually I actually have a few blog posts about it, which I'll also link, that you know, just so often we see tons of stuff on the internet where someone is trying to make a point and they will show a chart that shows some part of government spending being massive compared to something else. And look, isn't that bad? And it's, the problem is it's very, very easy to mess with these. In these charts, are we looking at total government spending or just federal? Are we looking at total federal spending or discretionary? Are we looking at dollars and cents? Are we looking at GDP per capita? Are we looking at dollars adjusted for inflation? It's really easy to mess with this stuff. That's why they say lies, damn lies, and statistics. That's what the phrase was. I was just about to ask you what, what that expression was because I had forgotten and all I could think of were how you can lie with statistics. So I was, I was close. I just didn't quite get there. It's lies, um, damn lies, and statistics. It's a solid line. You talked about angst and consternation with the budget, and I just want to point out how great a band name that would be, although I don't know what genre. Angst and consternation, would that be like grunge? It could be like tween, like kind of tween angst goth pop type music. Yeah, yeah, I see it. Angst and consternation. Angst and consternation. Before we get into the rest of this episode, just a quick housekeeping update. If you don't know about our website, because Eric mentioned the blog, and you found us on your favorite podcatcher, mm. 
reconsidermedia.com. We have all of the all of our prior podcasts. We also have quite a bit of written content, some resources that you can use, like a, what we call the reconsider principles and discussion strategies for having better political conversations with your friends and family and adversaries. So <laughs> check that out. <laughs> Because uh, otherwise it wouldn't be really fun if you weren't getting into it with your adversaries, right? I suppose. I have a lot of fun. I, You know what it is? I, I'm going to brag a little bit. I mostly don't have adversaries. You're a pretty sweet guy, Eric. Pretty swell guy. I, in politics, I mostly actually know how to get along with people really well until I'm about four beers in, at which point everyone is an adversary. Everyone's wrong. <laughs> uh, so, yes, those resources are there. We are on social media at Reconsider Pod on Twitter, on Facebook. We have a Patreon account. If you've been listening to the show for a while now and you want to subscribe to the Dan Carlin model of giving, which we're fans of, it's a buck an episode. You can do that at patreon.com slash reconsider. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash reconsider. Have I hit everything, Eric? I think so. Okay, great. Into government spending. So- we are going to get into some of the nuance and some of the subtlety with specific programs like Social Security, like Medicare. But before we get there, uh, before we get into all of this detail, we're just going to do a quick overview of how federal spending works. Yeah. And the thing we're afraid about in this episode is getting to Civics 101, where it's like, hey, Billy, here's how a bill is turned into an act in Congress. So we're going to do a very brief recap on how this stuff works because it's important. But then we're going to dive into actually how different parts of the federal budget and national and you know total government budgets, including state and local, are spent, mostly because every time I will quote something like this, people are surprised. So we're just going to do it, and you'll just be sitting there with your jaw on the floor going, man, I had no idea, even though it's widely available, because people are trying to manipulate you so darn often. Hey, Billy, this is how a bill gets made. That's from School ho- uh, Schoolhouse That's Rock, That's it. Right? Oh, geez. Yeah. yeah. I'm just a bill sitting here on Capitol Hill. That's not the, yeah, exactly. That's not the right tune. I don't remember the tune right now, but those are the words. So, so be it. And he's got this very, like this deep, I guess, Iowa draw. Like I'm just a bill. That's right. Sitting here on Capitol Hill. For Mm -hmm. everyone from Iowa, that's like shaking their head. Go like, God damn it. That's not how we talk. (laughs) I apologize. Uh, Exactly. That is what we're going to try to avoid. But in terms of just a quick overview There are three basic categories of federal spending, mandatory, discretionary, and debt-related. Mandatory spending is basically what it sounds like. It is money that's already been committed based on prior laws that have been passed. So stuff like Social Security, Medicare, these are benefits that people are guaranteed at a certain age, a certain amount of money for a certain time period. These Benefits and um, healthcare and pension programs are not unchangeable. It's just hard to change them because in order to do that, you'd have to have a politician running on a platform of decreasing people's benefits. And that's still politically toxic. That might change, but right now it's politically toxic. Next category is uh, discretionary spending. And this is, as the name implies, stuff that hasn't been pre-assigned in one way or another. Congress can change those figures annually when they prepare the budget. 
So this category includes stuff like defense spending, homeland security, but also non-defense related items such as education, energy, and really a lot of other stuff. There's a lot of programs that fit under discretionary. Yeah. So the, you know, the big difference here is like if you wanted to reduce social security outlays to people, you would have to like introduce a new law that was like, hey, I'm Congressman Eric and the law I want to get through is not paying people their social security. And like, that's not going to fly. Whereas with the discretionary budget, like a budget gets built by the budget committee and then it goes to the floor to get voted on. And as you can imagine, this is an absolute disaster of a process of like trying to get 435 people of whom like 10 of them had any say at the beginning for the budget to like agree on it. It's, it's tough, but that's the big difference. Side note, vote for Congressman Eric. He used to be a member of angst and consternation. Exactly. Exactly. That'll be like the dirt that gets dug up is there's this like, this is like picture of me with like dark hair with long bangs that goes over one eye and like lots of eyeshadow. And you know, back when I was skinny and I'm playing a bass guitar and people are like this, you know, this man is not safe with our children. <laughs> that is exactly what the voiceover would sound like. It is. You know that voiceover. Yeah, yeah. we all know that voiceover. Congress you can't trust yeah. this politician. Yeah. Congressman Eric, just say no. <laughs> so the so the third category, and my favorite, is debt-related spending. And so debt-related spending is we're paying interest on the debt owned by the federal government. So the the federal government takes out debt by putting out these bonds, sells them on the open market for a certain percentage, and then it has to pay them back every year. And so far, the United States is literally 100% on that, which is amazing given how many almost shutdown, you know, how many shutdowns we've had, but we do keep paying the debt. And so the debt as a percentage of the federal budget is something that like grows or shrinks based on how much debt we have and what the interest rate is on that debt. Right now there is a lot of debt but the total debt expense is actually lower than it's been many times in the past because the U.S. interest rates are at historical lows for a very long time. But as we talked about again with John Schwabish from the Urban Institute on a prior episode that we'll link, rates often go up at the end of economic boom and bust cycles. And so the federal government, you know, right now is running bigger and bigger deficits. It continues to need to borrow more money every year. And so what's going to happen is... If there's a, a bust, we're getting less taxes. We're spending more because entitlement spend or, or you know welfare type spending goes up, and sometimes like job acts and stuff get passed to spend money on that. So we're spending more. We're getting fewer taxes, and the interest rate goes up. So you know, look look out for that number to go up in time. Uh, I'll give you a quick aside because you mentioned something that I think is interesting, which is. Despite the government shutdowns, debt keeps getting paid. And in fact, the reliability of the U.S. government and its ability to pay debt remains you know, so high that, one, when other economies you know, begin to become weak, all the money flows to the U.S. But also, two, in, in the world of finance, if you're trying to calculate a discount rate, so if you're, you project future earnings and then want to figure out how much a company is worth based on how much it will earn in the future, you come up with this discount rate and you discount future cash flows into the present. And the quote unquote risk-free rate that you use in that calculation is US government debt. So it's still just an implied rock in the financial markets, whether it should be maybe another question, but it is. Oh, so the whole point is that the internal rate of return 
isn't compared against zero. It's compared against this risk-free rate because that risk-free rate is essentially zero because at any point you could just put your, you know, if you're choosing where to invest your money, it has to beat federal government, federal government debt substantially because there's very close to 100% return, you know, very close to 0% risk, very, you know, so if you just, instead of having your money in a mattress, you just have it in a government bond. And so that's your default. Your default is that you're making some money. Exactly. Okay, cool. Yeah. So back on the issue of mandatory versus discretionary versus debt related. So as Eric laid out, rates often go up at the end of boom bust cycles. This makes payment of interest expense more expensive for the federal government. So how does that relate to the other two categories? Well, mandatory is locked in for the most part. It's very difficult to change for politicians that want to keep their jobs. Which is most of which them. Which is most of them. Yeah. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> exactly. That means that uh, as interest expense rises, discretionary expense will most likely be the category that flexes and declines as a result. And since the largest category of discretionary spending is defense spending, that means that higher interest expense may very well limit the U.S.'s ability to spend as much on its military and therefore project power around the world. And Eric and I were just talking about uh, George H.W. Bush before we started the show and the first Gulf War in 1991 when the Soviet Union has fe- had fallen and the U.S. really was showing the world that it was attempting to provide some degree of stability by basically being the world police and just making sure that invasions were kept to a minimum. So the ability to do that is already declining, and that could continue to decline in part due to the amount of debt that the U.S. has and increases in interest rates. Now, many people may like this. Others might say that this decrease in defense spending is going to, uh, as I said, limit the U.S.'s ability to project power. And I think uh, to an extent, objectively, the latter part of that is true. It will decrease the amount of resources that the U.S. is spending on a certain activity. So then the question arises, how does declining defense spending impact the U.S.'s ability to pursue interests or security imperatives that we talk about a lot at Geopolitical Futures, where I work? So why I think this is interesting is because it forces you to consider the amount of debt that the U.S. federal government has as some sort of constraint on its power that could potentially increase in the future. And perhaps the federal government would just be able to raise taxes when that time comes to offset those greater interest expense, but maybe not. So what you're saying is that the United States deficit at this moment has potential major long-term geopolitical consequences for the world that might be negative. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, you know, all this stuff matters for everyone, which is really interesting. The, so the, the thing we're going to jump into next, so there's discretionary, there's mandatory, <laughs> that's the one, and there's debt. And we're going to jump into some of these. We're going to tell you which kind of spending it is and, and then what's actually being spent on it. And again, this is where you may be surprised at how much or little we're spending on certain stuff. Depending on your political tribe, it's probably going to be literally the opposite but this is also like a major, major bugbear of mine that I want to get through first. With the exception of Social Security, as written in law, which we'll get to in a minute, all this money is fungible, right? So like 
there's money in and there's money out. And so like when an event happens, when something changes, people will be like, ah, yes, like this is the thing that is responsible for the deficit. Or like they'll pick something out like military spending or entitlement spending and be like, this is contributing to the federal deficit. It's like, no, it's all contributing to the federal deficit. The only reasonable way to measure this is the percent of the federal deficit that it contributes to is the percent of the federal budget that is being spent on it. Everything is contributing to the federal deficit by the exact number of dollars that it's being spent on. Same with tax cuts, right? Like you reduce taxes, the, the, you know, the impact, you know, the, the, the impact on deficit is just total money spent minus total taxes. It's not one of them. It's not one little thing. It's all of it. You add it all up. You subtract the other thing. That's the deficit. It, it's all part of it equally. But Eric, how do you really feel about that? Oh, man. <laughs> so we're going to look at each of these. It could be like, you could be like, oh, that's the one that like my political tribe is supposed to not like. So that's the one contributing to the deficit. Just like look at we're going to look at it all together, man. And it's all part of the pie. So let's eat this pie a slice at a time. And let's start with everyone's favorite slice, the military slice. <laughs> right. And so I've, I've seen people I, I've seen a thing that friends of mine who are smart shared on social media that said military spending is 50% of the budget. 50%? That's quite a lot. Yeah, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. It was, <laughs> it was like what that thing had done. This is the most egregious example of this kind of just, you know, lies, damn lines and statistics that I've seen, which was it took only discretionary spending and put that in a little corner. And then it said, ah, it's all of the spending by the Department of Defense and the Department of State and Veterans Affairs, which includes healthcare, which would otherwise go into the healthcare bucket because they need healthcare too, and foreign aid and the DHS and police and like just all these things just in the discretionary federal budget. And it was like, sure, if you take all that stuff, much of which is not the military and only look at the def, you know, discretionary budget, you're going to get to close to 50%. But what, mm-hmm. what is it really if we look at the whole thing? One way to look at it is as a percentage of GDP, because you can't mess with the GDP, right? It is what it is in a given year. And so if you're, you know, well, it, I, I like it as a like total measure of, you know, how much of national wealth of like what people have earned out there in the world are we like spending on each thing? So if we look at regular military spending, which is like upkeep of the Department of Defense and like buying new stuff, paying for warships, all that stuff, not war notably, but just defense generally. As a percentage of GDP, it has dropped since the Cold War and mostly just keeps dropping. And so in 1960, just defense, not war, was 8.6% of GDP. So, you know, 8.6 out of every $100 that anyone made in the country was spent on military stuff. That's a lot. That's money you're not spending for yourself. It jumped to 9% during the Vietnam War. Bigger military had to sustain it. And it dropped in the 70s and early 80s, spiked again near the end of the Cold War as we bought a bunch of big toys to try to drive the Soviet Union into bankruptcy. It bottomed out at 2.9% of GDP in 2000. First recession hits, goes up a bit. Iraq War hits, we buy more military gear, it goes up again. It peaked at the end of 2009 with the Great Recession at 4.6%, and now it's down to 3.1%. So it's almost the lowest it's ever been since the beginning of World War II. So it's almost the lowest. And if current 
CBO projections say it will drop to 2.6% by 2025, but that depends on continued economic growth. Don't count on it. To add the war stuff in, so that's about $600 billion a year is you know, the numbers we're talking about for these percentages. You add the, F, the Afghan and Iraq war, it peaked in 2008 with almost $200 billion a year and peaked actually again in 2010 to 2012 at almost $200 billion a year again because of a huge increase spent during the Obama administration in Afghanistan. And so if you take total defense, which is military plus war plus veterans affairs uh, plus foreign aid, uh, and that's what, just what we call defense, it's nearly 5% of GDP having peaked at 5.7%. And you know the other way to look at it, uh, as Xander will jump into, is as a as actual, sorry, cut that. The other way to look at it that Xander is going to jump into is as a percent of actual total spent. Yeah. Now it's comparing it to GDP is helpful. Comparing it to the budget is also helpful. But to Eric's point that he made a moment ago, you need to do it to the total budget size. You can't just take 50% of the budget and compare all of these things against that and say, you know, it makes up 50% of the total budget when it's only 50% of discretionary. So total federal government spending in 2019 is set to be $4.4 trillion, which will create a deficit of about $980 billion. Total government spending, which includes federal, state, and local across the country, is anticipated to be about $7.6 trillion. So now if you want to look at defense as a percent of total federal spending, that's been about 20% more or less since the end of the Cold War, sort of bouncing between 17 and 25%, but always getting back to around 20% for, for the 30-year period. Now, in 2019, it's expected to be about the same. Total defense spending, all of those categories that Eric just mentioned a moment ago, not just the wars, is expected to be about $950 billion in total, which is about 20% of um, federal government spending. Some of the other categories, interest expense is going to be about 8% of the budget at $360 billion, which means that the remaining 72% of the federal government budget is comprised by things like pension payments and healthcare, education, welfare, transportation expenses, and then general and miscellaneous others. The largest single category is healthcare, which is expected to be $1.2 trillion dollars or 28% of the budget, followed by pensions, which again include Social Security, at $1.1 trillion, or about 25% of the budget. So yeah, if, we, so if we're looking at trends, as a percentage of GDP, government spending on the military or defense in total has like been gradually declining and is expected to keep going, keep going down. Our 3.1% compares to a NATO obligation of 2.0%, which a lot of NATO countries are not making, and you know Japan's cap at one percent. So basically, one percent means is is Japan's way of saying we don't have a military. Two percent is NATO's way of saying we have a reasonable military and we have three percent. And you know, and again, it's on the decline. Healthcare is very different. So healthcare spending by the government, which is primarily Medicare and Medicaid. So this is just spending by all governments on healthcare. So this includes state governments. In 1960, was less than substantially less than one percent of the GDP compared to nine percent from military. So we used to spend nine times the government used to spend nine times more or ten times more on military than it did on healthcare. Medicare and Medicaid kicked in during the Great Society under LBJ, and there's been just a straight line increase in 
Medicare and Medicaid spending as a percentage of GDP to 8% of GDP. So you make $100, eight, eight of those dollars on average are going to go to pay for Medicare and Medicaid. And this, unlike military, which is projected to go down, this is projected to can go up and up and up. And there's really not any end in sight of it going up because that's what healthcare costs have been doing in the United States. So right now, we spend between 2 and 3x just on federal government payments for healthcare, not total healthcare, but federal government payments for healthcare versus the military. Other kind of fun fact about healthcare is that the United States federal government spends almost as much per person on healthcare as Britain's government, and Britain is paying for the whole thing. So the federal government is just paying a supporting thing. So healthcare in the US is very, very expensive, and our government spends a whole lot on it. So the next category we'll talk about is education. So people will often say that, oh, the U.S. spends more on X category than it does on education. And this can get a little tricky because are we talking about just federal spending or total spending, including state and local governments? Because most education expenditures in the U.S. are actually paid by state and local governments. The vast majority is actually local. So if we look at education spending as a percent of GDP, the government, or rather the governments, all levels of government added up, has spent about 5 to 6% of GDP on education. So typically more than on all defense spending, but not by much. This works out to about 3% of the 2019 federal budget, which remember, it only pays a small percentage of total education spending, and 15% of all government spending in 2019. And if this is surprising to you that so much of education expenditures comes from state and local governments, be sure to go back and check out our two-part series on education in America featuring San Francisco Teacher of the Year, Lena Corda. Yeah, what is, what is interesting about education as well, and as we noted in the episode, I think preceding or after talking to Lena, we'll post that one as well. It's either part one or part two. The United States actually spends, as a government, more on education per student than any country in the world other than two of them. And those two are not the Finland, South Korea, you know, best in the world kind of thing. So what's very interesting is that our governments, you know, if we compare U.S. government spending on healthcare to Britain, which is funding its entire, its entire healthcare expenditure, we're spending a similar amount per person. And on education, we're spending a similar amount per person. So what's interesting is the biggest in the world. So what's interesting is, is I think we, we often like to have this myth that we're sort of like underfunding both of these substantially, when in fact, I'm not going to share any opinions of whether I think it's doing a good job or what parts are and are not doing a good job, but we are spending amounts of money that are comparable to our peers. In fact, the, the biggest spenders of these peers in both of these you know, major categories, uh, healthcare and education. So another place that, that people like to like bugbear about, and this is probably from the other tribe, is, you know, how much we spend on welfare. So, you know, we spend so much on welfare and, and it's, you know, taking money out of people's pockets, whatever, right? You, we all know the trope. I don't need to repeat it. If we talk about welfare, that's not Social Security. It's straight up needs-based welfare, relief, housing subsidies, unemployment, and income support. What we're looking at as a percentage of GDP, so, you know, compare that to stuff we know before, is it right after World War II, it was at 2%. It peaked first at 4% of GDP in 1978, 4.5% in 2009. Not surprising here because spending went up and GDP went down. And it's actually come back down to just above 
2% of total GDP. So every $100 people make, two is spent on relief for the poor. And it's about 8% of the total federal budget. So substantially less than the other categories we just talked about. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The next category we'll talk about is pension spending. And as a broad category, this includes Social Security, as we mentioned. Now, pensions for everyone, including Social Security, get to about 7% of GDP. Now, this represents about 25% of the federal budget for 2019 and about 19% of all federal, state, and local government spending. Interestingly, if you look at pension spending only for government employees, that comes to about 2.2% of GDP. That means that about $2.20 of every $100 in revenue generated in the economy is spent on pensions for government employees. Interesting. And this is up from 0.3% in 1960. To a degree, this kind of just reflects how headcount has grown in state and in federal and state uh, government levels. Local governments also have pensions, but they're usually a lot smaller. Yes. Now, we do need to talk about Social Security as something different because it is something different, you know, per, per that, that infamous, uh, infamous image we got. So Social Security is its own beast. One of the reasons it's its own beast is that people, it's designed that like most people most of the time are paying in somewhere approximately to what they are getting out, right? You, you pay in while you work, you get it out while you retire, it gets fairly close, right? It is somewhat redistributive. Like if you make almost no money or no money at all, or like you're disabled, like you're, you're not going to get hosed if you only put in $20. And if you make millions per year, you're not going to get, you know, and you're, you're in, in, and if you make millions per year, you're not going to be getting, you know, a massive amount out. It gets capped. But generally, that's the idea. You know, and based on the math that Xander just did, it's between like 4 and 5% of GDP is being spent on Social Security. So, you know, and this, this also is like not too far off of the payroll taxes that you are paying for Social Security as well. So it kind of makes sense. Now, it's worth noting that Social Security doesn't have enough money just sitting around to pay for everyone. So if we stopped collecting via Social Security taxes and only paid out to the people who had paid in previously, then we would very quickly run out of money. And this isn't surprising because the Social Security program started from behind from the very beginning. People started receiving benefits right away. 
before they had ever paid into the system. So there was never this nest egg that was growing bigger with time. So for Social Security to continue paying out to people who are receiving benefits, people who are working need to keep paying in. All right. So now we need to talk about this lockbox thing. Lockbox. <laughs> did you know Al, Al Gore did MIT's like graduation speech one year and people were playing buzzword bingo. By the way, for those of you who are too young, Xander just quoted Al Gore. <laughs> those of you who are old. Yeah. This is how old are you? This is a test. Are you over 30? You got this joke. And people were playing buzzword bingo, which is a MIT tradition. And at some point he mentioned something about climate change and he sees a bunch of people like put their heads down and start scribbling. And he's like, am I playing buzzword bingo? And everyone freaks out. They're like, yeah. And, and like claps for him. And it's probably the coolest moment Al Gore ever had in his life. <laughs> I'll have to go look that up. That's funny. So anyway, so this lockbox, people bring it up. What is it? Well, it's a trust fund. And so in a given year, there's definitely a, you know, there's been a surplus, right? Like there's more money coming in than going out because, you know, the population, the, the working population has generally been growing. And so, you know, and, and the total amount that, that we get to tax in is more. So we're, we're, we have this surplus. What happens to it? It gets invested in securities and that makes money and adds to the trust fund. I'm going to talk about, I want to talk about the, the lockbox specifically because of this image we got where it's like, oh, you know, Republicans borrowing from the lockbox to pay for wars. Note my point about fungibility earlier is why Republicans, somehow only them, want to cut your social security benefits, right? To pay for wars and, and tax cuts for the rich. So, so what's actually going on here? So the lockbox is a legal differentiator for this money. It's a law set in 1990 that social security money doesn't go into the big pie. All other money is actually just fungible, right? You take money in and then you decide how you're going to spend it. You can't just grab it. So what that means is the U.S. government will borrow from the surplus, um, in particular, it will borrow from the interest made on the, the trust, on these securities. Why would it borrow against them? Because sometimes the borrowing rate here is better than borrowing elsewhere, right? If the interest rate gets really high, you can get a better rate with intragovernmental borrowing. And so it makes sense, you know, it saves the government some money, but the government pays this back just as it would all other debt, right? It doesn't, it's not like going over to your, your like roommate and saying, like, can I borrow 20 bucks? And that roommate's like, God, when, when am I getting my 20 bucks back? It's got a plan. It's got a schedule, just like all of the debt. So it gets paid back into the system. And in fact, Social Security makes money on this borrowing because of the interest on what's being borrowed, right? Like, so actually every dollar that is borrowed from Social Security makes Social Security more money. So this idea that it is like not, you know, that like borrowing from the lockbox is the reason there's a crisis of Social Security is like patently provably false. Right. You, you cannot make a case that that is true because it's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's two interesting points to, to kind of comment on that. One, clearly intergovernmental loans can be cheaper because the government is sort of just lending money to itself. But in another way, you can also look at it more as a secured loan, right? Because the interest income is already there. Um, it, is, it, is, it represents dollars that exist, right? As opposed to future dollars that need to come back in. It's a secured Versus an unsecured loan situation. So it, it makes sense on two levels that it can get cheaper rates. Right. And so, you know, but there is conversation going on in Congress, probably not just Republicans, as you'll see why in a minute, about what to do about Social Security. And 
what we know is that the trustees who are like super big wigs in government, including the like secretary of the treasury, the secretary of health, the you know, secretary of a few other things, two people proved by Senate. They have noted that since 2010, non-interest income is lower than the outlays, lower than what we're paying out. So no longer are we running a, a, a surplus on payroll taxes in minus social security payments out. Now, Due to the interest made on the surplus that was built up, there's an overall surplus. So the fund is still growing through 2019, which is next year. 2019, it will cap out and then start declining, right? The total money in this this trust fund will start declining. Not because of borrowing, not because of any budgetary mumbo jumbo that the Republicans or anyone else did. Legally, that is not possible. It is because people are living longer. And therefore, the total outlays we have to pay, and like baby boomers are now retiring, right? And there's just a whole lot of them. So the total amount that we are paying out is just less than what is collected through payroll taxes in law that, you know, and these rates were set in law a long time ago. So it's nothing to do with any budget, anything recently. The crisis is that by 2034, due to this natural like population demographic change, the trust fund is expected to be exhausted, by which there is like no more money left. It will mean that you know, we'll still collect payroll taxes, but to fund Social Security, we're actually going to have to start dipping into other revenues, right? Other dollars that are part of that fungible pot. And so, you know, basically what it means is that in this image that was sent around, literally nothing about it was true. Like it was all false and all like easily falsifiable by checking Wikipedia. And the person who wrote it is a liar, right? They're just, they just lied to us, to you and to everyone who read it. And like, there is a real crisis here that needs to get dealt with and trivializing it by saying like, oh, it's just because the Republicans want to give tax cuts to the rich and spend money on wars when it is like legally not possible for those two things to be related is a problem. And so I wanted to harp on this in particular, because as you know, like the biggest issue I have in, you know, kind of popular politics today is like smart people. Like I went to a I live in Cambridge. I'm surrounded by like MIT and Harvard grads. They are smart people. And then they see something like this and they go, oh, yeah, Republicans are bad. And they just share it blindly. And they just not for a minute do they think like, is this reasonable or true? They don't even really care whether it's reasonable or true because it said Republicans are bad. You know, you know, I've got friends in rural Pennsylvania that do the same thing about Democrats. But we're talking about Social Security right now. And it just doesn't matter whether it's true. So listeners, please let this be a lesson in You've been conned, and by sharing this kind of stuff, you know, if you know, we have all been conned before, right? We have all been caught in it. And every time we share this stuff, after we have been conned, we con other people because they trust us. So feel a little bit of shame and then think about it. I'm done. Now, as I mentioned earlier, if you go to reconsidermedia.com, you can find in resources these reconsider principles and discussion strategies. And one of the reconsider principles is external skepticism. And the idea is to be skeptical of the information that is presented to you, right? And I think the most difficult part of applying this particular principle is being skeptical of the sources that you have generally come to trust sort of at face value, because that means that you're going to be less likely to just fact check them and look something up. And it's something we all do. But instead of looking at something and going, oh man, yeah, those other guys suck so much. You can also just think, "Uh, well, does that make sense? Like maybe I should look into it. And when you do, you will have a much stronger case next time you talk to anyone about this particular issue, right? So yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. And you'll stop contributing to like the global problem or the, like the national problem of BS flying around all the time and nobody having any idea what's true anymore or not. Exactly.
So next category we're going to, yeah, load off. Next category that we're going to talk about is Medicare. And in some ways, Medicare is sort of like Social Security, but there's no lockbox. Instead, we just pay in whatever we need to pay out at a given time and then add additional programs as we go. Sometimes these additional programs provide benefits to people who, who might not have paid into the system yet. So it's constantly being supplemented by other people paying into sort of this general budget. Now, as additional programs have been added, like Part A versus Part B versus Part C versus Part C, expenditures have gone up. With Part A and Part B through 1995, total outlays for Medicare were about 2%. And when C and D were added, they jumped to about 3%. Now, some of this is just because people are living longer, but most of it is also because healthcare costs for the elderly have gone up by quite a lot. And Medicare has to keep paying out for these expenses. Yeah. And so this is this is where it gets very different from Social Security, where like you pay into Social Security and like due to laws written a long time ago, you're going to get a certain amount out at a certain year. Right? That's just like kind of pre-programmed in. And so it's like somewhat predictable. Whereas with Medicare, like, hey, guess what? Like it became more more expensive to, you know, do this procedure, like, you know, a new drug is on the market and we've decided to add it to the Medicare thing. But like Medicare just gets more expensive. Like it just does. And you can't, you can't pre-program how much money someone is going to get out of Medicare. So this is like underfunded all the time and general income taxes go to pay for this a bunch. So again, like this is me getting back to that darn image where, which included Medicare in the social security thing. It is also wrong. It is, it is also just the case that Income taxes have to go to pay for this. There's no lot box. There's no, you know, it's not self-funded, anything like that. So we've gone through all these like major categories. You know, we've not hit transportation. We've not hit, you know, the DHS. We've not hit all sorts of things that are substantially smaller than all of these. Like these are the big things, right? Like as far as we talk about with the government spending, it's these categories. And we'll summarize um, for anyone so they just have a general sense of what's being spent where the biggest categories in federal government spending, total government spending. In federal government spending, the biggest outlays are in order. So this is the, the DC budget with all expenses put in are health, right? So Medicare, Medicaid at 28%. Pensions, including social security, note at 25%. You can cut social security out. So you can then say defense, 22%, welfare at 8% and debt service at 8%. So those are the big things. Everything else is like substantially smaller than all of these. You note that education doesn't show up here because it's mostly funded by state and local governments. So if you look at total government spending across the United States, which we can like actually mostly only estimate because a lot of local governments don't keep, don't like report books in the same way. And, but, you know, based on general estimates, total government outlays of that, what, seven some odd trillion dollars that we spend every year are health at 22%, pensions, again, including social security at 19 Education, 15%, and defense, 13%. So some of this may be different from what you've seen or heard. And there are like many ways to manipulate all this data to tell different stories. And it's also easy to gripe and make like non-contextualized cherry-pick comparisons of some category of spending to another to demonstrate why the other party is bad. You know, we spend so much on welfare, we spend so much on the military, etc., compared to this other thing I want to spend money on. And, you know, it's also worth noting that like both parties tend to contribute to these in, you know, like generally we think of like Republicans are responsible for military spending 
And also Republicans are the ones who like shrink the size of the government. But like that's not always true. So for example, the Obama administration spent about as much in Afghanistan during the Obama administration as the Bush administration spent in Iraq during the Bush administration, right? But like we don't hear about that as much. Uh, Republicans, on the other hand, like they've never shrunk the total government since I think Eisenhower. Like federal government spending goes up under Republicans, both as a you know percent of GDP and total. So the only times that as a percent of GDP government spending dropped was under Clinton and Obama. This is since Reagan. So it, it dropped under Jimmy Carter, jumped under Obama, dropped under Clinton. So those are all Democrats actually, and uh, only by a little bit. We'll see deficits go down significantly because taxes are raised during those periods, but federal spending went down just a little bit in each of those. And as a percent of GDP, the only year since the end of the Vietnam War where actual government spending, federal government spending went down as dollars was 2014. Every other year it's gone up. Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. Like it's not the story that you were told by your grandparents or whatever. Right. Another point that I think is worth taking away is how different categories of spending interact with one another. So saying that defense is 20% of the federal budget tells you something, but understanding how and why interest expense will grow in the coming years and potentially put downward pressure on defense and other discretionary spending gives you sort of a higher altitude view of spending trends. So knowing how and why mandatory spending will continue to increase and the political decisions that are going to have to be made by U.S. leaders before that trust fund runs out in 2034. The lockbox. The lockbox. This all gives you some sense of the decisions that are going to need to be made in the U.S. in the next 15 years. Yep. It's a tough situation uh, that we are facing. And guess what? You know, easy snap finger answers aren't always there, particularly on spending. I remember a poll while I was doing research for Wedge that like pretty much every American wanted the U.S. government to reduce spending. But then when presented with all the different categories, almost no American wanted any particular category to have less spending. And it's sort of like, so what are we going to do? So this is a toughie. So thank you all for joining us. This has been your whirlwind tour of the United States government spending and budget process. This is just the thinnest chip off the iceberg. So don't take this as gospel, but I think our data is pretty good. We've, of course, got a bunch of notes in the show notes. You can check them out at reconsidermedia.com. And as always, dear listeners, please remember, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. And this is Eric signing off. See you guys soon. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.